This episode of No One Knows, The Science of Health and Fitness is brought to you by Thunder Drain. If you live in the greater Rochester area and are in need of a service plumber, maybe a sump pump, a toilet, a vanity upgrade, a clog or a leak, call Thunder Drain, 585-500-1177. And you could always text them at the same number, 585-500-1177. And this episode is brought to you by GlickFit. Through GlickFit, you will realize that fitness is much more than just working out and practicing healthy nutrition concepts. Fitness is about realizing your potential and to push past it. GlickFit, 739 South Clinton Ave in Rochester, 585-317-1451, or send Noah a private message on social media. Okay, so today we have a very special guest all the way from Middle Earth. It's the mean, mean slinging, nutrition reviewing, scientific researching Alan Aragon. Uh, Alan Aragon, thank you so much uh, for being here. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Noah. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, it's it's an absolute honor for uh, someone of your uh, prestige and cl- uh, clout to come on our uh, podcast. Um even if it is only video because Brad Schoenfeld took away your helicopter privileges. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, getting flights uh, to and from Gondor gets expensive and then he gets, a, you know, you know how Brad can be. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, uh, why, why do you like trolling him so much? Uh, because he's a genuine genuine person he's very humble and he has a great sense of humor so with that combination um I think he's a confident guy too so so we just kind of like hit right in the middle and just kind of knock him down a few notches and <laughs> enjoy his sense of humor so it's a win-win okay so but before before we get into it a little bit i have to ask the most important question have you actually ever dressed up or cosplayed uh for halloween as aragon from lord of the lord of the rings <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't, my man. <laughs> no, I haven't. Options for this year, man. Options. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm looking ahead. We'll see. We'll see what the. We'll see what the stars have in in in, in line for me. So we'll see. All right. So uh, I may know who you are, but some of our audience may not necessarily know who you are. So why don't you uh, give us the breakdown on exactly what your expertise is? You know, this is always a hard question, and I don't know why I have to think it through, but I'm just going to shoot from the hip. I am primarily a researcher. So I'm one of these guys who's interested in the science and the evidence behind the recommendations that drive our uh, practice and, and just our the hopefully the forward progress of what we can accomplish in the fitness industry and, and the health industry as well, sort of the all the allied fields of health and fitness, uh, nutrition, exercise, and, and the, their integration. So I'm a researcher. I've been doing research. Well, I've been publishing research since about 2013. Um, I was a practitioner full-time before that. So I was a trainer for 10 years, uh, starting from the early 90s, and then from Oh, roughly uh, 2002 and onward, I was mainly sitting on my butt doing nutritional counseling. And then so the research thing really started uh, in full swing 2010, 
2010, 2012, and then started publishing in 2013. So speaking been along, been, been around a long time. Uh, yeah. Speaking of publishing, you actually have the most viewed uh, research paper on um, in recent history, right? For nutrient time, yeah. I believe, right? Uh, published in, yes. in a journal, uh, a substantial journal of clout, if, uh, if I do believe. Yes, that's the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Yes. And that is uh, founded, co-founded by by really good guy, Joey Antonio. And uh, he's kind of like the godfather of a lot of the sports nutrition stuff uh, that we um, refer to today. He paved the way and he started the ISSN. And so um, I did a paper with Brad Schoenfeld called Nutrient Timing Revisited, where we kind of took a re-examination of the whole anabolic window concept, and then we published a narrative review about it. And it's the most viewed and most downloaded paper in the history of the uh, Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So that's uh, a little, nice little feather in the cap there. I'm pretty yes, proud of that. Yes, it is. That That is an amazing uh, accomplishment. So uh, in an effort to get the, the people to relate to you a little bit more, not just as a, mm-hmm. as a researcher, but you know, one of the common things, the commonalities that bind us all is adversity, right? Um, now, yeah. I know that you used to be overweight yourself. So why don't you yeah. tell the people... What what was it about your lifestyle and your daily habits that led to your weight gain? And what systems did you put in place to combat that and lose your weight? Yeah, so I was overweight in certainly in the BMI sense. So in the height to weight ratio, sort of the standard uh, for assessing overweight versus obese, um, etc. Um, however, I also ha- had a DEXA scan done. And that got me at 24.9% body fat, okay, which is nothing alarming, but it's well into the, the overweight uh, for, for a man. And um, uh, <laughs> this is actually a curveball, dude. I, I never, I really never talk about times where, where I've been out of shape. But, um, but yeah, what, what really was able to change that was just gathering up the discipline, gathering up the nerve and the balls to make major changes in my routine. Um, it's, it's tough to, to nutshell the whole situation, but it really does boil down to energy balance right? and the extraneous things that you consume. Well, in my case was, um, liquid calories, uh, that just needed to be minimized, uh, eventually eliminated. And so that was the trick for me was liquid calories uh, with the um, notorious culprit being the alcohol calories. Right. Now, um, you've been sober for quite some time now, correct? A relatively short-ish time, about 13 months or so. Okay. Roughly 13 months, not a drop, man, not even a half a drop. So it's, wow. been, it's been an interesting ride. That, uh, that, um, that's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing considering that I drank almost every day uh, for the five years prior to that. And um, it became an obvious problem, which blew up in my face. So I just cut it off, man. You know? Yeah, I got you. Now, you said um, one of the things that helped you overcome that is 
the nerve, right? And mm-hmm. um, I also know that one of your previous clients used to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. So is there any chance yeah. that, you know, he helped you work up that that nerve or maybe the rattlesnake, <laughs> you know, gave you a, a cold, stoned stunner to the gut and then dropped you to your knees and chugged a beer over you? I mean, like, is that the nerve? Is, is, is that what did it for you? Or is uh, totally unrelated? Uh. <laughs> totally unrelated, man. Totally unrelated. <laughs> in fact, when when I worked with Steve, we tried to work in um, one or two glasses of wine uh, a day into his program. It worked. It worked just fine. Um, the image you see of Stone Cold just pounding the you know the two beers at a time, right. <laughs> you know, uh, in that ring, it really wasn't him. He was kind of a clean eating freak, and we just worked in some very uh, low to moderate uh, wine into his program. So, yeah, yeah, Stone Cold had nothing to do with that, man. Yeah, all right. Well, I mean, uh, still an entertaining story, none the least. So, yes. Um, oh, man. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to transition into some uh, questions of myself and some questions I've gathered through various forms of, of social media and, uh, you know, basically do a little little back and forth in an, in an interview here. So um, you have been known to run el- uh, rub elbows with some of the greatest minds in health and fitness. Uh, finally culminating to being on the show, how do you feel? <laughs> I feel absolutely fantastic, my man. And, uh, and it is a privilege that you were the guy who invited me. Because uh, thank you very much. I, I follow your page and I love your work. So um, this is great. That's, um, that is a nice little feather in my cap, so thank you. Um, now, uh, all joking aside, one of those people happens to be Lane Norton. Now, uh, he is very vocal on the, I don't want to say concept, but the, uh, or the fact or the notion that food only is accountable at max for about 5% of our overall health. And he says it's as little as 1% that, you know, weight loss and body composition are the driving factors of overall health, not food. Would you agree with this statement? I don't know if I can agree with specific numbers because I don't, any attempts to quantify this kind of thing are just futile to begin with, you know, you, you, there's really no way to quantify. Um, my thought on the issue is that I, I can see where Lane is going with that. And if, if indeed his position is that uh, food accounts for such a tiny minority of health, um, yeah, I don't know. There, there's a bunch of definitions that have to be uh, elucidated here because number one, I'm OCD. And number two, I'm OCD. (laughs) So, but, but look, I am aware that when you look at the overall picture of health, um, food choices play a role, but they are not the end all. So if we take a look at the healthiest populations on earth, uh, the healthiest individuals on earth, uh, when you look at the healthiest individuals on earth or the longest living individuals on earth and you do an inventory of what each of them eats, you get some really interesting answers. Right. You get, first of all, every, every one of them eats differently. When you look at the centenarians, super centenarians, the, like the, I'm talking about the record holders. Um, so on an individual level, it's very, uh, it's highly varied and it's very interesting. You'll, you'll hear chocolate, you'll hear, um, 
uh, a typical list of junk foods um, mixed in with the typical healthy foods. But when you look at things at a population level, then there is some convergence of uh, whole food intake, minimally refined food intake, mm-hmm. and a substantial amount of uh, plant food intake with these uh, populations who have a long lifespan and a long health span. Um, they typically are not predominating their diet with crap. So I, I don't want to misinterpret Lane. Um, I didn't hear personally what he has said. Um, but I would agree that food is part of the part of the picture. It's not right. the whole. Yeah. And you know, indeed, you can maintain a favorable body composition or a relatively lean body composition. And you can maintain physical activity and you get a decent amount of sleep. You have a decent uh, state of mental health that you maintain. Then the human organism is almost like a dog. It's extremely resilient at surviving on pretty much anything you throw at it. If you can maintain a certain level of physical activity and leanness. Yeah. And um, so what, one of the examples or a bit uh, big advocates for, you know, uh, food composition or qual- uh, quality will say, having a, um, a relatively low or, or meaningless uh, impact towards um, overall health uh, is the example. Have you ever heard of the nutrition professor Mark Hobb and the case study diet sure. that he did, did on himself where over the course of 10 weeks, um, you know, he lost roughly th- uh, 30 pounds, but his diet was um, Doritos, Oreos, Twinkies, zebra cakes, sugary kids cereals donuts and mountain dew and because (laughs) he was able to be active keep everything to a a deficit uh, you know over the course of the 10 weeks um you know he was able to improve almost all of his uh health markers and you know it it, it's one of those things that uh, may boggle the mind for a lot of people but seems to back up lane and and uh, some other people that talk about like food having such a minor role on health and because he actually lost weight, regardless of the food quality and composition, he was actually able to improve his overall health. Yeah. I don't disagree with the idea that you can take somebody uh, from an obese or overweight state and uh, feed them a bunch of crap at a deficit and see health markers improve. I definitely don't disagree with that. Um, What, begins to get problematic is if you were to take that model and just stretch it out for a lifetime. Oh yeah. And then you start seeing problems with the satiating capacity of the foods. You start seeing problems with the disease preventive capacity of the foods on, and you can start seeing problems with, um, uh, gosh, what is there besides that? Not a, not a whole lot, but uh, those aspects, those elements can, over time, accumulate negatively and, yes. and yes. potentially manifest in disease. Yes, I, I would agree with that. You know, it, this is, um, you know, it's just one uh, drop in the bucket, right? This is something that is almost like a an isolated case or award study where everything is controlled for. But if we were to put this into the average populace, the long-term sustainability is probably going to be horrendous. And many people, you know, would not be able to likely get the same sort of results out of it. Right. So this, this may be Mm -hmm. more of a, a situation where this worked for him, 
but may not be appropriate for most people. Yes. And I would venture to say that even Mark Hobb would, um, I think that's his name. Yes. Uh, even he would admit that it's probably not a good idea to sustain that diet for a lifetime. Um, and I want to bring up also the idea that people can swing the complete opposite way of that. They can go the other extreme and say, people should never consume any amount of those foods ever. Right. And then that presents another problem as well. So that presents the whole idea of dichotomous thinking or overly rigid dieting, right. where if you impose that, that sort of protocol on folks, then you start seeing it backfire actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> we're, we're going to transition here into more percentages and quantifying them. And I know you're, this question is just going to be frustrating for you, but we're going to ask it anyways. Another colleague okay. of yours is Mike Isratel. And in one mm -hmm. of his recent books, uh, you know, his, his diet books, he talks about quantifying the various stages of diet and weight loss into percentages into how much progress or how important each stage of diet is and the amount of results mm -hmm. that you can get from it. Now, uh, he goes on to say that energy balance or calories in, calories out is going to make up 50% of your total progress. Your macro balance will make up 30% of your progress. Meal timing is only at 10%. And then meal composition is at 5%, just like Lane has it. And then he has hydration and supplements making up the last 5% combined. So, you know, we're looking at the, uh, the first two categories of, uh, calories in calories out and the balance of your macros making up 80% of the results that you can possibly make. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, meal timing at 10 and then only again, 5% food composition. And then, you know, that, what does that say? If, if these quantifications are accurate, what does this say about, um, you know, the misunderstanding of, of, of the populace and what they perceive to be health, if this is accurate. accurate. Uh, yeah, well, like you said, once again, uh, I don't think you, you can put numbers on, on these elements. I don't necessarily disagree with the hierarchy or the order of importance because, for example, you can have the cleanest, most perfectly put together diet in the world but if you're consuming, let's say, 500 to 1,000 more calories than your body can use or build lean tissue from, then you're still screwed. Right. And if you have this perfect cornucopia of, of whole foods that covers the spectrum of essential macro and micronutrition, you're, you're still going to be getting overnutrition. You're still yep. going to be storing fat and uh, if your genetics are right you'll be storing fat in the in the in the right places um depending depending and, and if your genetics aren't so great then your fat accumulation will be visceral and ectopic as they would call it and then you can develop uh, insulin resistance and then work your way towards cardiovascular disease and, and early death so um I don't necessarily disagree with the hierarchy of those things. I just think it's very difficult to separate. Um, I'm getting a spam call here. I, I heard the vibration, yeah. so <clears throat> let me put my take my phone off the desk. That's right. Um, robo call. Um, so 
I think it's very difficult to separate total calorie, the, the importance of energy balance from the importance of food quality. Uh, it's difficult to. However, you you can upset the apple cart with energy balance in the wrong direction in spite of how high quality your diet is. Right, so yeah. That, you agree. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you can have the perfect macro blend, but if you're still in a surplus, you're going to gain weight. Or, you know, take, mm-hmm. for instance, if whatever the, you know, arbitrary healthiest or cleanest food you can imagine in your mind being right now, you know, if if you're only supposed to take in 2,500 calories to be in a deficit, but you're eating the cleanest possible food to 3,000 calories, you're in a surplus. And it doesn't matter what the quality is or how clean it is i mean it's it's not going to give mm-hmm. you the results that you want yes and there's also some kind of irony there too there's sort of the circular problem with uh with foods that are not high quality or foods that are not mostly whole and minimally refined uh, when you eat a bunch of junk that's energy dense hyper palatable and you attempt to sustain an energy deficit with that then it's going to be much more difficult because it's a lot easier to passively overconsume those types of foods. Yes, absolutely. And with their lower satiating capacity, you almost end up uh, really fighting that goal of maintaining a caloric deficit or even maintaining a eucaloric balance or, or just an equilibrium between energy in and energy out with these types of foods that are energy dense and hyper palatable, these so-called junk foods. So uh, when you look at it, from that perspective, then the quality of the food and the food sources really do become a bit more important than kind of this afterthought or this small percentage of, of the hierarchy of importance. So um, I can see sort of from a technical perspective that, yeah, what, what energy balance really can override quality, but you can't just put quality far down on the hierarchy of importance because quality has this way of uh, dictating energy balance just by virtue of its effect on eating behavior. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think of these as like a definitive black and white, and this is absolutely the the way it is. Maybe more of um you know friendly guidelines or, or something to to that degree. Um, yes. But uh, I, let's uh, let, let's keep it moving here. I, I want to keep name dropping here. <laughs> let's go. Bring me those names. Yeah. Man. So keeping with the name dropping theme here, a recent and very famous MD by the name of Mark Hyman made the claims that zero calorie artificial sweeteners trick the body into thinking it's real sugar, and this reaction alone can cause you to uh, gain weight even while uh, having zero calories and being in a caloric deficit. Is there any truth to this? (laughs) It's easy to make claims. It's a lot harder to back them up with research. So this gentleman, Mark Hyman, (laughs) is... (laughs) Well, let let me tear into him for a moment. Okay, have at it, man. Swing away. That was was horrible. That was uncalled for. Uh. Um. Channel your inner uh, stone cold. Get get that rattlesnake out. <laughs> it's it's like this. Somebody makes a claim that artificial sweeteners uh, train your body or have some sort of neurological effect that makes you want to eat more sweet. Okay, that that's fine on paper, but then when you look at the evidence, it 
just doesn't support it. And when I say look at the evidence, I mean look at the body of evidence, look at the weight of the evidence, look at the multiple trials, look at the systematic reviews, look at the meta-analyses, and, and what do they find? You know, we, we can't just sit and cherry pick our, our favorite study and say, oh, look, look, look what this thing found. We have to look at all of the relevant research in the area. And so the majority of systematic reviews and meta-analyses on this particular topic do not indict artificially sweetened products as antagonists of weight loss. Uh, they always fall somewhere between having no effect to having a positive effect on weight loss. Um, now, this is there, there's a bit of a disparity between observational research or population research, uh, where you don't control any of the variables. You just kind of see, you know, potential. You try to root out potential correlations between intake of, let's say, diet diet sodas and and, and obesity and stuff. And there is some sort of correlation there. But there's always the chance of uh, a phenomenon called um, reverse causality. So right, or correlation doesn't equal causation. Right, right. Yeah. So, so populations that are already, let's say, overweight or obese, and they're trying to diet or trying to cut back, may have a tendency to reach for these diet products. Uh, it's not the other way around, where they started off having the diet products, and then by some miracle. Um, these diet products led them to become overweight or obese. Mm -hmm. So when we look at randomized controlled trials or proper experimental research that can establish the uh, proper direction of causality, then um, diet products or, or low calorie or calorie free artificially sweetened products have a tendency to help the weight loss process. So yeah, that's absolutely. the story. That's the story behind artificial sweeteners. Are you going to look at observational data or are you going to look at experimental data? Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, Lane Norton, uh, in one of his uh, recent videos, he coined somebody, um, and I can't think of who it is off, uh, off the top of my head, but uh, very poignant. He says, those claims that, that can be made without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So. it depends on what it depends on what conversation you want to have, you know, and it, and it also depends on the research that you're looking at, um, and and also just from a kind of a, from a sidebar, I'm not a, a huge fan of downing artificially sweetened drinks all effing day long. Yeah, because a lot of them can be caffeinated, um, and you can definitely abuse caffeine in that sense. Yeah. Um, I think that there is some merit into actually uh, getting to try to like the drinking of regular old water. <laughs> there we go. There's yeah, I got mine that, too. You know? Um, so I would encourage people to try to drink water in ways that, that you can find it palatable and find a drink. You yeah. put some lemon in it or just uh, – uh, wake it up with a, with a little bit of fruit juice. Um, now people are going to run away with that recommendation yeah. and just start <laughs> yeah. cutting orange. The, the, the hate but, mail and um, comments are going to spew in. Yeah, bring, they, bring on the trolls, right? Yeah, but I, I'm not one to encourage the pounding of cases of artificially sweetened beverages a day either. Yeah, no. yeah. So I, I, there are some people who just swing the complete other way. Yeah. I'm not one of those. It's it's one of those things. Take take with a grain of salt. It's it's not to advocate like, hey, like you don't need to drink water and just drink 
our zero calorie or sugar free drinks consistently cuz w- one of the things that you know is uh, widely observed is a lot of companies take advantage of the FDA regulation that says uh, zero calorie drinks right if you're under a certain amount of grams they can round down to zero so that zero calorie drink that has no carbs no sugar may in fact actually have multiple servings of that stuff but because it's under their recommended value, they can still list it as zero. So, I mean, it, it it's just a kind of a no-brainer thing that anything that's labeled zero calorie, if it's not water, will have calories to it, right? It's um, it can be a, it can be a small amount, and depending on how hog wild somebody goes with that, then yeah. they could certainly begin to cross um, thresholds of. Uh, practical significance yeah yeah it's it's one of those things that we see uh, many nutritional companies take advantage of a lot Uh, i know uh, halo top and quest bars take advantage of this where they will uh because it's sugar alcohol or it's a zero calorie sweetener it's fiber right they'll say net carbs instead of actual carbs and uh some of the worst offenses i've seen that per you know per container because they have multiple servings it ends up being over a hundred calorie difference from what's labeled on the nutritional label to what the actual macronutrient value comes out to if you actually look at total carbohydrates versus net carbohydrates mm-hmm. yep very true yeah um, true. It counts. yeah absolutely i mean and like it let's let's take the the higher estimate here of uh 100 calories uh being off right let's put that over a week put that over a month punt that over a year and someone says well i'm hitting my numbers and i'm in a deficit why can't i lose weight well things like that add up over time and can be a significant factor yep agreed all right so uh, keeping on with the artificial sweeteners, uh, we hear a lot of stuff and you know uh, studies and mice that correlate artificial uh, sweeteners with cancer. Uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything can give you cancer. Every <laughs> damn thing can give you cancer. Uh, it's sort of a judgment call that you make with, with artificial sweeteners. Uh, the toxicology data in humans with artificial sweeteners is, is very weak uh, to non-existent. Um, of course, you can load animals up with exorbitant doses and, and um, try to cause almost any effect you want. Yeah, operative word uh, being absorbent. And some of these studies in mice with artificial sweeteners, it's like 18 times the daily recommended amount. Mm-hmm. Or more. Yeah. Or more. I think that just as a a general practical guideline. If people can keep their artificial sweetener intake to a low lore, um, and of course we'd have to define low lore, then you're going to be staying away from, very far away from the thresholds of, uh, of risk as far as cancer goes, as far as the, the cancer doses or, or the doses that were carcinogenic in animals. It's just so far-fetched. Um, it, it it just doesn't raise any concern. So there are folks who fall on the side of uh, extreme caution or alarmists or, or hippies who would, <laughs> would, who would say anybody who drinks like one diet soda a day is going to get cancer in 10 years. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like the stuff that we see in uh, the What the Health documentary where they're like the consumption of one eggs is equivalent to four cigarettes, right? And they just go these totally wild... 
uh, unsupported claims and, and you know, people unfortunately yep. eat that stuff up many 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 leaps of faith and logic you know we we all might as well just pack up our urban life and and just just pack it all up <laughs> and move to montana and just grow grow stuff on a farm <laughs> that's, it. that's the solution that's it yeah Oh man. Um, so, uh, one last thing about artificial sweeteners here, and I'm sure you want to move on. Uh, but recently, <laughs> um, and last name drop here, maybe, maybe last name drop here. Um, right. Dr. Spencer, uh, Nadalski, uh, I hope I'm not mm-hmm. butchering his last name. He recently made a post with reference to some studies that actually show better weight loss with zero calorie diet soda over water. Now he does mention uh, you know, he would or has, uh, well, kind of play fast and loose, that he actually has recommended this or he could recommend this to patients, but it is a case-to-case uh, approach that this isn't something that's black and white and across the board, that this study shows this, so this is what we need to do now. Uh, but, you know, maybe it falls into the category of, like, um, the diet soda, one one diet soda a day allows for greater adherence, so they actually get better results as opposed to, you know, water that they won't drink at all. Could you ever see yourself making the same recommendation of saying, hey, you know what, uh, have your artificial sweetener, drink your diet soda, and, you know, you'll, you'll be just fine, or is this something that is a no-go for you? Uh, I'm totally fine with it. I, I really am totally fine with it. I'm aware of the research that showed superior results weight loss wise with um, artificially sweetened beverages versus water. Um, and I, you know, the, the, the mechanism of, of how that would work is, is the artificially sweetened volume of fluid probably just displaced what would have been uh, caloric consumption on the part of the dieter. And so that's basically just the way that these things work just lowering the energy density of the diet. Right. Uh, and I, I'm not against that. I'm not against using artificial, artificially sweetened beverages as, as a dietary weapon, mm-hmm. uh, as it were. In fact, it's super common for the bros, um, to use, uh, artificially sweetened beverages during contest prep, uh, as substitutions for just, let's say grabbing a donut. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to eat a freaking donut. You're much better off. You just taking down 12 ounces of like a diet Coke. Yeah. So, um, yeah, some people see that as the lesser of the two evils and, and that we really need to get off of our sweet kick, whether it's diet drinks or not. Um, but the fact of the matter is if you have a low consumption of artificially sweetened beverages and that's not comprising the, the the entirety of your fluid intake for the day, you're probably going to live just as long and just as healthy a life as the next guy who's completely avoiding them. You know, humans are incredible like that. Yeah. All right. So, uh, no more artificial sweetener questions here. So, <laughs> uh, <we're, laughs> you can ask whatever you want, man. I, right. I, oh man. All right. Cool. I'm, I'm, I, I, I've had, I've had the entire, uh, universe thrown at me in my lifetime. So there's no question that I, 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 I wouldn't at least try to answer. Wow. The entire universe, you must be very durable and very strong. <laughs> uh, you don't even know, man. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right. So 
Uh, we've seen more and more personalities in the fi- fitness community shift away from using terms like cheat meal or cheat day as it implies that mm-hmm. you're doing something wrong or there's something inherently bad about it. Uh, it's also well established that food isn't good or bad and that you know we shouldn't apply moral values to food as it uh, you know in turn makes somebody else feel good or bad. Like, oh, I ate this thing I shouldn't be eating, so therefore I am a bad person. Right. So uh, given this information, do you think it's appropriate for people to stop using terms like clean bulk and dirty bulk, as we know that there's no such thing as clean or dirty food? Um, Would it be more appropriate to start shifting towards just like a massing phase? I think that this is an individual matter because the research shows that when somebody knows that a cheat is planned, then the idea of it being kind of a a naughty uh, escapade or something off of the off of the plan doesn't become a negative thing. Okay. So if if you you frame something as a like planned indulgence or planned cheat or planned hedonism then um, it ends up being a positive thing for the dieter. So I don't necessarily think that we need to ban certain words like cheat meal. Um, what we do need to do is, is educate dieters in, about how that would fit into the plan. So I don't know. I've, I've never been a huge, um, a huge proponent of, of banning certain terminology. Um, I, I can see how that might, might benefit the dieter, but as long as they know what's within the plan, I think people are okay with the idea of being naughty or bad or cheating. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, do you like, so if someone says like, oh, we should say like free meals as opposed to cheat meals, that's, that's something that you think is, is unnecessary or again, case to case. Kind of case to case. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I, in practice, way, way, way back, like like almost twenty years back, I I got some good results from clients who were allotted um, X number of cheat meals a week, like cheat meals a week. Let's say two cheat meals a week. Uh, the whole cheat day concept or a free day concept was a little more problematic <clears throat> but the cheat meal concept still allowed for good progress uh looking back you can kind of nitpick on on how you conducted things and said hmm, what if i just completely eliminated the idea of a cheat meal and just showed them how they can fit this into that and this right. possible but i think that with certain individuals it is easy for them to think in in binary terms and it sort of simplifies their program to think, all right, I am just going to go 100% compliance on most of my, most of my uh, days per week or most of my meals per day. Mm-hmm. And then with one of the meals, I have the option of just casting caution to the wind. Uh, that all worked. I got to say, I mean, even just making things that black and white and rigid, it still works yeah. in practice. 
I I know what works for me, and again, I'm I'm saying what works for me here is um, I, I I don't want to say I'm one of those binge eaters, but if if I do a day, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I just eat what I like, right? And you know, I'll stop when I'm full or, or I'm satiated, but still, that it it can have a tendency to pile up very fast. So what I've found in in myself is every day I work in something small that, you know, helps my adherence and keeps those craving uh, cravings at bay, right? So I have something small every day. So like, for me, one of the things I've, I've recently been doing, and again, people will probably get on me because this is, you know, processed food and all this stuff like that is um, Klondike bars. So uh, like, uh, you know, there, there, there's something like the palm of your hand, decent size, you know, they, they got some heft when, when you bite into them, but they're about, they're, they're only about 200 calories, right? And they make a Snickers flavor and Heath and Oreos and Reese's and any other flavor you can think of or candy bar that you like that they make the, uh, those flavors and they keep it at 200 calories. Now, now 200 calories is, is a drop in a, in a bucket. I mean, that may not work for someone you know, who is, you know, 12 weeks into a cut, you know, getting ready for prep, but for the average person, you know, 200 calories uh, a day for something to, to help them indulge may work better for them as opposed to having a, a free day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and a couple things there. Number one, you mentioned Klondike bars takes me back to the 1980s. <laughs> I, I, you know, you may be showing your, your age there a little bit by talking about Klondike bars. I, I miss the Klondike bar commercials and um, everybody who grew up in the seventies and eighties remembers the jingle. Yeah. I remember the them as a kid. What would you do? Right. What would you do? What would you do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, okay. So that's, that's number one. And uh, number two, I, while I don't mind the idea of a cheat meal or, or sometimes a cheat day, I, I it does bother me the idea of good and bad foods. Yeah. Because all what matters is, is the context, the overall context. You yeah. can't isolate a food as good or bad unless you are going to commit to having only that food as the sole component of your diet. So yeah. that's an impossibility, right? So um, with that said, um, you, the, the Klondike protocol, the 200 calorie Klondike protocol is really similar to a practical guideline that I, I am really a proponent of. Okay. And that is somewhere between 10 to 20 ish percent of total calories being from basically whatever you want. Right. Yeah. And uh, this is going to vary with the individual. Some people like to go hundred percent in quotes clean with with their diets but i don't see a problem at all with uh on average about 10 ish sometimes 20 percent of total calories coming from stuff like a klondike bar and yep. with your 200 calorie klondike bar that can really easily fit into the 10 percent uh whatever or discretionary allotment right. uh w with most diets mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that's kind of a perfect example for how to fit something in, but not screwing up the overall quality of the diet, yep. keeping it within 10%, maybe possibly 20% margin. Yeah, I tell you, uh, you know, uh, on a regular basis after I've had dinner and I'm watching my last show or emails or whatever, it's just nice to kick up my feet and have a little nice snack of something and then just 
call it a day and go to bed and, and, and you feel nice and you don't wake up the next day being like, oh my God, like I shouldn't have done that. You, you feel okay with your decision, you know? All right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, moving on here, uh, we're going to get into a topic uh, that I know you are very adept in and that's going to be fiber. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I recently wrote an, uh, an art- article called uh, Don't Sleep on Counting Fiber, where I stated that for weight loss purposes, we should track fiber just like we track a normal carbohydrate. Now, uh, another dietitian uh, rebutted me and rebuted these claims saying that, you know, we shouldn't or we don't need to track fiber as it's insoluble, to which I, you know, rebutted to her saying that, you know, it, it didn't really matter or that we should because it's still absorbed in the colon as uh, short chain fatty acids, right? Um, now, being that there there is over a dozen different types of fiber that all have different calorie counts to them, and given the fact that roughly 10 out of maybe 100 people actually can understand what macros are, right, in your professional opinion, should somebody actually track fiber? And if so, how should we track them? Yeah, this is going to be a weird answer, okay? Uh, <clears throat> I don't necessarily think that everybody needs to track stuff down to the gram. Um, but among the people who you do assign that, that tracking task, I think that fiber should be tracked because you're already, there's already this established, uh, um, presumption that, that this person is okay with tracking stuff down to the gram. So if they are okay with that, just mentally mm-hmm. track the fiber because there is going to be about on average one and a half to two ish calories per gram of fiber that is metabolizable and that would contribute to uh, net energy intake. So without tracking that, then it can uh, add up, especially if the person eats a lot of it. Uh, there is a counter argument there where um, fiber can tend to carry um, metabolizable energy out of the body. But just to be on the safe side, if it is a weight loss goal, um, I would track fiber for those who do track grams of stuff. Right. So that's my convoluted answer. <laughs> well, it's, it's just that you, you, I've heard it, uh, multiple arguments, you know, uh, we, I hear the, you know, it doesn't need to be tracked because it's insoluble. I hear that, you know, track it at two calories because, you know, it's not as much as a normal carb. And then, I hear the people that say, you know, uh, we should track it as a normal carbohydrate far, uh, fiber at four uh, calories per gram just to err on the side of caution for weight loss purposes. Because if the, the reality is that we're wrong about it not being tracked, the result is, you know, we're uh, mistracking or under-tracking our calories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think if you're, if you're tracking carbohydrate, protein, fat, you might as well take that extra step and track fiber, uh, especially if, if the goal is super important. There's a lot of stakes riding on it. Um, but once again, I, I, I don't think that everybody needs to track everything down to the ground. Right. Time. Yeah. I mean, some some people are very su- uh, successful in just tracking protein. Right. And then uh, mm-hmm. uh, working off portion sizes and uh, things of that yep. nature. So there, there, yep. there's multiple ways to to get to the answer here. But. Indeed. Um, 
All right, so uh, I want to talk about yo-yo dieting here a little bit. Uh, you know, we mm -hmm. all know this is bad for us uh, because of its impact on uh, metabolic adaptation as well uh, as its ability in worst-case scenarios to generate new fat cells, right? Um, this makes weight loss even harder in the long term than it already is for most people. All right, so uh, one of the things that never seems to be discussed about yo-yo dieting and uh, – Tell me if uh, you think this is an issue uh, that needs to be addressed is uh, how it can impact people's health aside from just weight loss, right? So recently, uh, Tom Hanks was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, of which him and his doctor attribute to his constant yo-yo dieting for roles of going up substantially and going down substantially. Uh, do you think that this is accurate? Uh, and something like this, if it is accurate, does it to lend credence to the theory that type 3 diabetes is actually Alzheimer's? Okay. I, I think there's just a lot of speculation going on there. A lot of speculation. Um, I don't think there's enough data for us to make any uh, firm conclusions on, on any of that, especially the type 3 stuff. Um, and for something like type three diabetes, I'd, I'd consult with a, you know, one of my physician friends and see what, see what their feedback is on that. Since, uh, you know, the, the, I have not personally dove into the literature in that area, but as far as the type two, um, which is, is that, is that what Tom Hanks got? He got, he developed type two diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, uh, he, he attributes it to, uh, you know, the, the yo-yo dieting. So um, mm. I don't know if, if you can point to yo-yo dieting per se. I think you can point to the periods where you maintained an excess of body fat, but I don't think that you can say, oh, it's, it's the fluctuation that did it. Right. I don't think that uh, there's, I think you're going to have to make some leaps of logic and some speculation there to arrive at that conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is a very strong association between uh, maintaining excess body fat and developing type 2 diabetes. But as far as the, the yo-yoing effect, mm, and even if you, if you look at uh, fat cell hyperplasia, that is an odd thing. There, a recent research came out uh, where they, they examined that phenomenon in humans, and it only happens in the lower body, um, which, is, which is odd. Right? What, it, you said it strange. only happens in, humans, in the lower body? In humans, yeah. In, okay. in animals, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of like anything goes. There's differences that happen. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure we can um, attribute yo-yoing to, to type 2 diabetes per se. I think that uh, it's, it's mainly the periods of excess body fat that will do it. Right. Um, so, uh, continuing with this theme, you may have seen the story. There's a viral story being pushed by, um, let's see, uh, the Alzheimer's Society. And it's about this 82 year old lady who, uh, previously or still has, it, it depends. I mean, who knows, uh, how accurate this story is, but the Alzheimer's Society is, uh, pushing the story of an 82 year old lady with dementia who got her memories back by switching her diet, uh, from whatever it, it used to be. They, they didn't say, but they said it, 
they switched her over to a Mediterranean style diet uh, where it's blueberries, walnuts, broccoli, kale, spinach, sunflower seeds, green tea, and dark chocolate. And, um, you know, her doctors are claiming that, you know, her dementia is, you know, again, grain of salt here, all but gone, that she went from an Alzheimer's-like state or type 3 diabetes, whatever you want to call it. And now she's, uh, over the past several months, she's shown amazing progress. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's one of those interesting, isolated stories that make for a good lay press article. Yeah. Uh, if that was universally applicable, then we would just have people with Alzheimer's get on her protocol and just switch out your foods for those. And, they, and we'd be uh, eradicating uh, a major world problem. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's headlines and it's one of those, you know, too good to be true. Because if it was that true, there wouldn't be any Alzheimer's, right? It's like... Uh, the the supplements and the gimmicks and the waist trainers and masks and stuff, if, if those things actually did what they claimed they could do, there would be no fat people. Well, that's true. And there is the, the, the difference between a, a diet that's good for brain health versus a diet that's good for general health. They're pretty much the same thing. So, unfortunately, there's no there's no special uh, Pandora's box there that we can we can open and you know a special box of foods that you can eat every day and guarantee that you will mitigate the effects of uh, cognitive decline that are related with age, or you know let alone start reversing the effects of uh, dementia. Yeah. So just one of those stories it makes it makes for a good story yeah and i, I you know I, I think that's more what it is is this is a feel good story it's uh maybe uh, an exception to to the rule or, or you know uh, something that doesn't happen every day and uh mm -hmm. it stuff like this it's nice to see and I, i'm happy for this lady and her family but it may actually do a, a disservice for some people because they just see the headline and they share it and they go, yeah, see, I told you this type of diet, this is the, this is the answer. Yeah. I actually got a DM about that particular article you're talking about. So apparently it made the rounds and everybody is kind of getting their hopes up. But once again, it's just lay press with a whole lot of, uh, whole lot of faith leaps yeah yeah speaking of uh faith leaps uh, trending stories and uh, sexy headlines uh we're gonna talk about the french fry diet uh do, do you know where i'm headed with this uh is this the guy who went 60 days on the potato diet no or no no potatoes? um no, this is. Uh, I, I know what you're 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 talking about, but uh, this is another viral story that I, I've seen all over the all over the place. It's this uh, story of this young boy uh, who ate almost nothing but French fries, and his doctors are claiming that he went blind from it. 
So, um, <laughs> and the, I mean, like the, the headlines are so stigmatizing oh, and so I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be laughing about that. Yeah, I no, no, no. But I mean, it's like, it's like boy eats nothing but French fries and goes blind. Right. And it, like, yeah people just see this and like, Oh my God, French fries are bad. Well, no, French fries are bad. Like let's, let's dig into, let's dig into it and see what's actually going on now. Yeah. You can, you can run essential nutrient deficiencies from a, from a one food diet all day. Oh yeah. Almost any any food you choose, you know, you do a one food diet all the way to the grave. uh, You better be a koala bear eating eucalyptus leaves. Otherwise you're not, you're not going to survive. And I mean, this, this is what the annals of internal medicine, uh, we will be talking about another story of theirs very shortly. Uh, but the, you know, uh, internal medicine, they, they came back and made a statement on this story and saying that this is not a direct result of eating French fries. This is actually a result of being overly strict with your diet and a lack of diversity and a lack of macronutrients and micronutrients. And, uh, I, I I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but they, they, they call it, AFRID, A-R-F-I-D, or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Um, you know, I, the first time I've ever heard of it, are, are you familiar with it? You know, what, what uh, enlightened me? <laughs> Man, that's a new one. That's a new one for me. I haven't heard of that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes I, sense. It makes sense. Okay. So um, this is, uh, you know, speaking of... Uh, uh, annals of internal medicine, we have to uh, address the the elephant in the room with uh, with their most recent, you know, uh, five study uh, systematic review, uh, review with me, right? Uh, mm-hmm. This has been extremely, extremely controversial where, you know, they, they basically came, uh, came back and said that we don't need to limit our red meat, right? Mm-hmm. That not only mm-hmm. a process, but unprocessed red meat the, the original estimates that, that we thought came with, uh, you know, that type of diet aren't nearly as bad as we thought. And, you know, the, the evidence that says we need to uh, reduce our red meat intake is, is very weak or non-existent. Now, uh, you, uh, you put a post up about this and uh, Harvard, I know Harvard <laughs> has gone kind of apeshit over this saying that, uh, you know, it's a horrible, horrible study and this can mm-hmm. jeopardize nutrition science and it's going to erode our faith and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's going on here? How can some researchers from an extremely established medical journal say, hey, you know what, uh, red meat in moderation is okay. And then Harvard Medical School and come back and be like, boom, end of the world. Like this is so <laughs> destructive. What, what's going on here? Well, it seems to me that Harvard has a strong contingent of uh, vegetarians and or vegans at the helm. And so naturally, uh, they're going to get their knickers all bunched up about a publication saying, hey, we can maintain our current intake of not only red meat, but processed red meat. And that could really just set people off. Oh, yeah. I thought it was kind of funny. I I didn't necessarily agree with the... uh, the, the publication in, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, but, you know, their, their point is th- that the data are too weak to, to make these vehement recommendations to push this stuff down. Um, the effects are too small. The, the, um, 
the, most of the evidence is observational and uh, etc. All you know the case that they built to to maintain the recommendations, and also there are some issues that people have raised with uh, this panel. What qualifies them? Who's on this panel, and right. who chose the people for the panel? And yeah. All that what, stuff. what what's the uh, uh, efficacy of of, of the study? Yeah, there's, I can see how it angered folks and I can see how it's potentially a, a misinterpretation of the data. Um, but then again, you, you are looking at observational data um, as far as the these recommendations that are very anti-meat. They're based on data that is uncontrolled. And, and any time that you bet the whole farm on observational data, you're, you're really taking a gamble. Yeah, because observational data cannot show cause and effect. Uh, it, it can generate very strong inferences, mm -hmm. and in some cases where the observational research aligns with the mechanistic research, um, and that mechanistic research also aligns with uh, human trials or, or clinical trials. So you have this kind of this convergence of evidence from the epidemiology mm -hmm. to the micro mechanistic stuff to the regular, oh, let's see if humans can comply with this, with this protocol and run it for several weeks or months. If you have a convergence of all of those lines of evidence, then you can pretty strongly say, yeah, we need to, we need to cut back on our red meat intake. We need to cut back on the processed meat intake because um, there is, just a, a, a unanimity across these lines of research that indicate that we need to do this because it, it's, it's harming our health. But in the case of red meat, there is this really inconvenient disparity between observational research and under the observational umbrella, you've got mm -hmm. epidemiology, there's population research, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a disparity between observational research and experimental research so the problem with that is experimental research which encompasses the clinical trials and the randomized yep. controlled trials the gold right. standard trying to fetter out causation the randomized controlled trials do not consistently show bad things from red meat intake particularly yeah. uh, red meat that's not highly processed mm -hmm. so in fact uh, a recent meta-analysis. Let's see how recent was it. Pretty recent. So I love that word meta. Meta-analysis, oh, yeah. man. That's... It is. It is a very meta word as we, <laughs> as, as it, we speak about it. Yeah, it's 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 almost as buzzworthy as like the uh, you know the stuff that we see that's just as harmful on on the opposite side, right? We we see meta studies as like the optimal level of scientific evidence, right? And it it, it is very buzzworthy. And it's, uh, it's interesting to, to see the comparison from one extreme to the other there. Well, they're, they're necessary. Meta-analyses are, ne are necessary. People will pick apart every kind of research that floats across their desk. I don't like observational studies. I don't like control studies. Matter of fact, I don't like meta-analyses. Okay, well, we, we, need to, we need to look at the evidence as a whole from, a, from an aerial view from time to time to see what, what direction the evidence Yeah, step back and see the bigger picture here. So, yeah, so... A recent meta-analysis of the experimental research of the controlled interventional research on humans okay. consuming red meat actually supported the uh, this uh, Annals of Internal Medicine. Really? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Now this didn't happen after the annals one, but okay. it, I mean, looking at them side to side, it, it corroborates it. Right. Now you can say all, all day long that, that the authors of the annals paper just misinterpreted the data. Okay, fine, fine. Let's say they did that. But now let's look at experimental evidence. Yeah. And this particular meta-analysis I'm talking about is by O'Connor and colleagues, and it's uh, a 2017 meta-analysis Okay. Um, by O'Connor and colleagues. It's titled Total Red Meat Intake of uh, Greater or Equal to Half a Serving a Day Does Not Negatively Influence Cardiovascular Disease Risk Factors. Okay. A systematic research meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. So they looked at RCTs in humans, and they looked at the various doses as well. And even up to three servings of red meat a day, they didn't see any negative effects on blood lipids, okay. uh, lipoproteins, and um, uh, blood pressure. Can, so, can, can we define three servings? Uh, like how? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. A serving per their, the, the parameters they set um, was 2.5 ounces, so okay. about 70 grams. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's that's gonna make many uh, yeah, red-blooded yep, Americans right. very sad. <laughs> Only two point <laughs> five ounces, but I mean the total. So three. So we're saying three times a day, two point five. So uh, um, up to up to about seven ounces a day, they didn't see any ill effects on the parameters they looked at, which were blood lipids and blood pressure. Okay. And people would then uh, the skeptics of that would, would say, well, what about things like cancer? Well, there was actually a, a a nice, a nice paper looking at the mechanistic research of um, of what would of the constituents of red meat that would potentially uh, result in cancer, like uh, heme iron and heterocyclic amines, and they, you know, you you don't have mechanistic human research investigating cancer effects. You know, it's all animal research, just for right. ethical. Yeah, ethical reasons, uh, logistical reasons. Um, so that particular paper by okay. O'Connor and colleagues in 2017, published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, okay. that was on human trials, human randomized controlled trials with uh, that included red meat as well as processed meat. In fact. Okay, uh, and uh, they found uh, no ill effects with up to three servings a day. Wow. And when I say no ill effects, I mean specifically on blood lipids and blood pressure. So there are other parameters we can look at, and there are other things that people are worried about other than blood lipids and blood pressure. So the other thing that people are worried about is cancer. Okay. So um, a another pretty recent, so this is another 2017 paper. This is by uh, Turner and Lloyd. and this the title of that is association between red meat consumption and colon cancer a systematic review of experimental results so once again we have to look at animal data over here because we can't run randomized controlled trials looking at cancer outcomes in humans that would take years and yeah uh, yeah that's run into problems that, that's one of the the flaws that uh, nadaski uh, spencer was pointing out uh, mm -hmm. when he put up his, um, Instagram story, uh, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, red meat in moderation, isn't the big 
picture here. Uh, you know, to specifically hone in on just red meat being good or bad for you is to do a disservice to yourself and your health that the far greater danger would be uh, the overconsumption of all calories, right? So we're, 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 mm-hmm. we're focusing in too much on something that in the grand scheme of things doesn't, uh, isn't really that impactful. Right. And if you were to translate the findings and, and this particular systematic review of experimental findings on red meat and cancer, once again, they're, they're, their position is that the amounts used in the animal models um, were just many, 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 many more times um, the doses that humans consume. And, and they were looking particularly at heterocyclic amines uh, and heme iron. And they also mentioned there, there's a lot of these diets are kind of in a purified form that are missing a lot of the protective factors present in diets that contain red meat. So um, their conclusion was that there's just insufficient evidence mechanistically to link red meat intake with colon cancer. Um, So once again, we've got a convergence of evidence from the mechanistic side all the way to the clinical trial side. And then you have that wacky and and Jimmy rustling paper from the annals of internal medicine. (laughs) That's kind of like corroborates the rest of the stuff. So, I ultimately we have to make decisions as consumers um, and we have to be aware that science is always going to be incomplete. It's always going to be debatable. Um, What ultimately matters is the decisions to action that we make for our own health. So I am not a proponent of eating 10 hot dogs a day. thinking (laughs) That sounds disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you don't want to freaking. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a proponent of that. I am a proponent of uh, being pretty judicious about your processed meat intake um, and processed and highly refined foods in general. I think it's wise to keep that to the minority of what you of uh, what you consume. I think that people who consume red meat uh, should make the majority of it fresh red meat. And not only that, but fresh red meat that you're not constantly charring the heck out of charring it down to black ash and then just yes. bam three times a day. I think yeah. that you are pushing your luck there if you do that. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you bring up a great point there and that's those that, that burnt that, that charred ends, right? Because when, when we see, you know, when people talk about red meat being a, a carcinogen, it's largely isolated to those actual tips, right? The, the charred pieces, the, the burnt end pieces. And so when we look at other diets that have uh, higher meat intake, but it's not red, uh, if we're talking about chicken or fish, we don't see the same sort of correlation between uh, you know, uh, a cancer or the carcinogenic a- a effect. Um, so, uh, the, and this may be an asinine question to ask, if the red meat is prepared in a way that doesn't allow for charring, do you think that it would still fall into that carcinogenic or that that cancer buzzword category? I doubt it. I, I just I doubt it. There's nothing inherent or special about red meat. Some people would point to the heme content, but once again, in experimental trials and in the animal data, which we're relegated to look at because there's really no human data uh no good human data looking at this then um 
the doses of heme iron are just multiple times more than what humans would consume. So mechanistically, the, the link just isn't there. Um, so outside of charring the stuff. So that's the running hypothesis right now. It's the way that people tend to cook the meat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but then, that, that, that's then again, what I figured. But you, you also have to look at the context um, of, of red meat intake and lifestyle. I think that red meat is a common food consumed among people who push excess in, in many facets of their lifestyle. Exactly. You know, who doesn't, who doesn't grill some nice red meat with a nice couple few thousand beers? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, could, could we compare this to the insulin obesity model where, you know, mm. red meat, is just highly correlated with people that are already obese or overweight that are at risk for cancer to begin with because of their lifestyle. And it's not actually red meat, right? Uh, if, if we were to actually change how they cook it or even remove those other factors, would we still see the same results or, or would that drop? Yes, that, and, and those are unanswered questions. And I, I made up a poem because oh. I, I was a poet. I was a poet in a past life. So I took the whole correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation saying, and I made it rhyme with correlation does not automatically equal causation. It's often guilt by association. Hey, that's my poem. I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> and that is a lot of the case with things like red meat. Things like eggs. I, eggs have been linked to diabetes for crying out loud in, in, the, in the nutritional epidemiological uh, literature, which is just yeah. basically silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, let, let, let's let's uh, be very clear here. When, when, when people talk about food being carcinogenic, people get the idea like it's uh, equated to smoking cigarettes. You know, the, the effect that it has on cancer, we're, if, if it's actually accurate, right, we're talking fractional percentages increase versus cigarettes being thousands and thousands and thousands times increased chance for that. I mean, uh, to really uh, associate the, the two is, is quite negligent. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's why, just as a general principle, people should look at observational research or epidemiology as useful for generating hypotheses. So in the research world, we generally look at uncontrolled data as hypothesis generating. So it's, it's not useless, but it is useful for generating questions that are subject to more rigorous investigation through randomized controlled trials when it's feasible and when it's ethical. Let's let's do some rapid fire questions here. Uh, yes or no, okay. worth your time. You know, answer as quickly as you can or simplistically as possible. All right. So, uh, protein powder. Great. <laughs> uh, caffeine. Fine. Uh, creatine. Within coffee. Within okay. coffee. I have a bit of an issue of people popping caffeine pills, and I have a bit of an issue of of these. Uh, energy drinks um being just absolutely abused by by young folks trying to uh counteract their their shitty sleeping habits and make it through school right all right so creatine creatine is fine and it's the only 
uh, non-drug ergogenic aid that, that genuinely works specifically for enhancing muscular size and strength. All right. Um, BCAAs. <sighs> Save your money. Um, <laughs> protein itself, high quality protein ranges somewhere between 15 to 26% BCAA as it is. And you're not going to get any extra enhancement of resistance training adaptations by sprinkling extra BCAA on top of that. Um, there's a one of one, one of my uh, acquaintances online. Gosh, I'm forgetting who actually said this, but he said that taking BCAAs or, or supplementing BCAAs on top of a pre-existent sufficiency of total daily protein is like turning on the sprinklers for to water your lawn when it's raining. <laughs> All right. So uh, glutamine. Boy, potential applications for uh, gut diseases. However, when you, when bodybuilders use glutamine in the hopes that it will increase size, strength, or performance, then you are wasting your money. Okay. Uh, fat burners. Fat burners work a little bit, but at what cost? At what risk? You know, okay. you're, you're going to get to your goal uh, in, let's say, uh, four months versus six months. And, and at what cost? Right. Uh, L-carnitine. L-carnitine has some odds and ends there of, of positive results, but uh, it's really hit and miss in the literature. Very equivocal data. Um, there's some new stuff showing it, it can be effective, but um, generally speaking, I, I would not recommend people spend their money on L-carnitine. All right. Uh, CLAs. CLA has some short-term literature showing some interesting effects, but when you draw it out over the long term, it really just kind of diminishes and washes out. Uh, um, the long-term research on CLA just shows that it's a waste of freaking money. Is it a waste of money just like collagen is a waste of money? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> collagen is something interesting because there is actually a a large body of research showing collagen peptides are effective for a pretty wide range of applications. Really? Skin integrity, whether it be uh, integrity of nails, um, even uh, integrity of joints. Uh, there's a systematic review out and there's various studies. Um, I, I kind of got interested in the whole collagen thing when I saw that people were fighting over it online. And so um, I, dug up all of the research and uh, laid it all out on the table. And I was genuinely surprised that we can't accurately say that collagen is just a bunch of bunk because it's so, you know, low quality protein and stuff because wow. peptides do work. There, there is far more positive result research showing not only uh, statistically significant effects, but practically significant effects as well. Wow, so, that is surprising yeah. to hear. Wow. Yeah, okay. I'll, 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 I'll send you the research on it, oh, man. You'll, fantastic. You'll, you'll kind of be like, oh, damn. Wow. Yeah. 
putting my foot in my mouth here. All right. So, uh, <laughs> all right. It happens. No, oh yeah. I mean, but that, that's, that's the sign of, of, of a good, uh, uh, scientist, someone who can look at new evidence and change their stance on something. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I went into it. I went into it very skeptical because I've, I heard a lot of my, uh, colleagues and sort of the kind of the word on the street or just certainly coming up in the, um, formal curriculum saying, okay, these are good quality proteins. These are crap quality proteins and collagen always fell into crap column. But then, uh, uh, there is a lot of very interesting research showing its effectiveness. Wow. All right. So we'll end on, uh, two things here, right? Uh, detox drinks and detox, detox drinks and apple cider vinegar. <laughs> detox drinks work only in the sense that People use them for quick weight loss. Um, and if you follow a detox protocol, you're going to be eating um, hundreds, sometimes thousands less calories than you normally would. So that's where the weight loss is coming from. And sometimes with detox stuff, they are uh, diuretics. So you're not only taking uh, in less energy uh, through the mouth, but you're expelling more energy out through the, through the rear quarters. Yeah. So um, not a good idea. Uh, detox dieting should just just change and they just call it yo-yo dieting you know, yeah here's your yo-yo detox yo -yo um and then what was the next one apple cider vinegar apple cider vinegar apple cider vinegar has uh, one human study showing efficacy by a company who produces apple cider vinegar Ooh. <laughs> And look, I'm, I'm not one to automatically knock the funding source of something. Yeah, you just but, put up a really good post about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a bias in and of itself for people to dismiss um, research on the basis of funding source. But whenever there's just a single study showing efficacy of something, then you have to keep your skepticism levels up, especially when there are other factors going in, like uh, potential um, commercial interest. So it's not something that you use to just completely block your mind to the findings, but it is something that you take into consideration when there's so few data to go on. Fantastic. Uh, Alan, let uh, our listeners and our viewers know where to find you. AlanAragon.com and on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is the. Alan Aragon. I wish that Alan Aragon wasn't taken because, you know, the the title makes me think I'm I, I'm in absolute love with myself, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I, I I am sometimes, not all the time. Um, so yeah, my Instagram, the Alan Aragon. Just go to alanaragon.com. Uh, for everyone listening and uh, and watching, where available, I highly recommend you go follow this guy. Um, it is an incredible honor and incredibly humbling to me that you took this time out of your day to to spend with me. And uh, from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you so much for spending this time with me and my viewers, Alan. I, I greatly appreciate it. You're very welcome, Noah. I'm happy to do it again. You hit me with a lot of clinical and health ish and. <laughs> hippie-ish questions <laughs> caught me off guard dude i'm used to answering bro questions about muscle protein synthesis and, and getting jacked and leaner and all that stuff so this was a good session it, it forced me to think so thank you for that oh, I, my pleasure if uh if if someone like me you know can can force you to kind of uh 
take a second to really think deeply about, about what we know that, um, that makes me feel good. And that compliment towards me from you means a lot. So thank you again. I appreciate it. You got it, buddy. Likewise, uh, thank you. Yeah. I uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you again, bud. All right. Boom, yeah. right oh, there. you pound. Yes. All right. Let's line it up so Let we can pound there. it. Is, is that? Yes. Because you have the fist bump with everybody. I finally got my Alan Aragon fist bump, right? Oh, <laughs> my God. Man. Yes. I love it. Thank you so much, man. Enjoy the rest You're of welcome. your day. I hope I didn't keep you from your weightlifting. So go enjoy that. I'm good, man. I have time to even get in a pre-workout meal. To hey. the pump. There we go. Thank you so much, bud. I'll see you later. Take care.